Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing better use of medications in older adults. We have a very special guest, and I'll be speaking with my UCSF geriatrics colleague, Dr. Michael Steinman, who is one of the country's foremost experts on medication safety in older adults. His research program focuses on improving how doctors prescribe medications for aging adults, and he has published countless studies related to medications and improving the quality of healthcare for older people. He also quite recently served as a member of the American Geriatric Society's Beer's Criteria Expert Panel as part of an elite group of experts that is charged with updating what we geriatricians and others have often referred to as the Beer's List. And this is basically our reference guide of medications that we generally try to avoid or use with caution in older adults, and we'll be telling you more about that in this episode. Since safer use of medications is very important to maintaining better health while aging, I'm delighted that Dr. Steinman was able to join me today to talk with us about safer prescribing of medications for older people, and also to tell us about the latest update of the Beers Criteria, which was just published in January of 2019. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leslie. Pleasure to be here. So I often like to have guests start by telling us a little bit about their background and how they came to be doing what they're doing. So for you, you're an internist and a geriatrician. And how did you become interested in this intersection of aging and medications that seems to have really become the foundation of your, your research career and your geriatrics career? Well, as with many people in uh, academics, it was a little bit of a, a winding path. I first got interested in looking at how people use medications because when I was in my training, I noticed we were having all this expert guidance about what we actually should be doing. But so many times people were not actually prescribed or if they were prescribed, they weren't actually using the drugs that we knew from the evidence would help them. So I got very interested in figuring out how we could close that quality gap. And then as I sort of worked with, with research mentors and got involved in the area, it quickly dawned on me that older people were the population who both were taking the most medicines and also most at harm or most at risk for harm from misuse of medications. And that combined with other things that got me excited about the care of older people really brought me into geriatrics and also honed my interest on this research topic. Great. So, yes, yeah, so I remember actually uh, you trained at UCSF, if I remember right, as a, for internal medicine and also for your fellowship, right? That's right. Yes, and, and I did too. And I actually remember seeing you speak about medications when I was a resident thinking, wow, that is really, really cool. And so I've been following your career with great interest. And I think I followed you also in doing the VA Quality Scholars program as well. And have just always really admired the work that you do on uh, addressing this question of, you know, what are better ways to be prescribing medications to older adults who both have just more need often for medications and are also uh, more likely to be harmed. So I know one of the topics that often comes up 
in articles on this is the question of inappropriate prescribing, quote unquote. So can you share with us a little bit more about what is inappropriate prescribing when it comes to older people? Well, it's a great question because it's an area that is prone to misconception and there's really a lot of opportunity to do better. So the traditional approach to thinking about inappropriate prescribing is thinking about bad medicines. And what I mean by that are medicines which are particularly harmful or not helpful for older adults. And if we just didn't prescribe those medicines to older adults, things would be better. And that is a very important aspect and one that shouldn't be minimized. But if we think more broadly about inappropriate prescribing, there's all sorts of other considerations that can really negatively impact people's health and well-being uh, that are separate from the prescribing of bad medicines. So for example, we might, I as a doctor might prescribe a medication, which is perfectly reasonable to prescribe, is likely to improve someone's health. But then if I don't actually monitor uh, what's happening with that medicine? Is the person having side effects? Is the medicine actually working as intended? That medicine might stay on the person's regimen for years and years and be actually causing them harm or possibly not providing them any benefit. Or if I prescribe someone a medicine and they're having a lot of adverse effects and really the, those harms outweigh the benefits, but I'm focused just on thinking about they need to be on this medicine because such and such guidelines said they should, really can miss the bigger point. Or if I'm prescribing a medicine that's really not consistent with the person's goals of care, I'm not doing them any favors. So there's a very broad landscape of thinking about what are the harms and benefits of medications for the person as a whole? What does it mean for their life? Am I helping them achieve their goals? And if I'm not doing that, as a doctor, and if the patient isn't facilitating that through their role in really uh, being an active participant with their healthcare team, it's really a missed opportunity. So thinking about specific lists of medications to avoid is important, but it's really only one part of a much larger puzzle of thinking about the totality of one's medications and what you can do to optimize them and minimize burdens and harms. No, I like how you point that out, that it's not, uh, first of all, we'll talk more about the bad medicines in a, in a moment, because I assume you're referring to the, the medications that geriatricians love to hate. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, like sedatives and tranquilizers and things that tend to affect older people's you know, memory and falls, many of which are on the beers list, and we're gonna be talking about that list soon. But I like how you frame it as, as how it's not just the the moment of prescribing, but it's that it's the follow-up that happens as well that is important and where, you know, as a group, as healthcare providers, we often fail to follow up appropriately in making sure that people aren't having side effects or, or that it's working as intended. I feel like I've, there's also been another issue that sometimes comes up, which is that, that sometimes health providers often fail to offer older adults some medications that actually would be appropriate. Oh, that's absolutely true, and that's another critical element. There are many times people would actually benefit from treatments, but they're not offered those treatments, and that can be because of ageism on the part of the clinician or sort of expectations about so what someone does want or what someone would want that don't necessarily jibe with reality or it can just be to kind of an, uh, a nihilism or excessive pessimism about medications. So at the same time, we should guard against over-treatment. We also want to make sure that the things that medicines can do well 
with minimal side effects, we should be offering them. And that includes medicines to prevent future diseases, but also includes medications which can actually help with symptoms in the here and now. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking about medicines like antidepressants. Depression is com- commonly underdiagnosed, and even when it's diagnosed, it's undertreated, or medicines to improve pain. And it's really important to kind of make sure that we are using medicines as much as possible to help just while avoiding harms. Yeah, or at least considering them and not just waving it off thinking, oh, nothing can be done or the person doesn't want that. So that being said, overall, I mean, the statistics are that older adults take a lot of medication. So overall, would you say that we're mostly too many medicines, more medicines than is necessary, likely to be beneficial or not enough? It's definitely a mix of both. I'd say the predominant problem is overuse of medications. Doctors typically are, or and other prescribers are typically pretty, pretty ready to prescribe, and oftentimes will be much more hesitant to take a medication off. So medications tend to accrue and kind of build up over time. So underuse is definitely an issue. But I'd say globally, people tend to take more medicines than they should be taking, rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. So you just mentioned that that doctors are, it's easier for them to prescribe and harder for them to take medications off. What are some of the main drivers, do you think, of, of people just ending up with these inappropriate prescriptions? And about how many people, older adults, are being affected by what we might call inappropriate prescribing or suboptimal prescribing? So I'd say it's, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but it's almost, cer- almost certainly more than half. If you look at any specific mark or use of uh, medications in these lists of drugs to avoid in older adults, use of medications that are not don't have any potential reason for them, globally having any of those problems seems to be well over 50% of older adults. Yeah, yeah. And I find that the general public is sometimes surprised to find that out because I think often they just have this uh, faith in us as health providers that of course we wouldn't be prescribing something if we didn't have a good reason and if it weren't likely to be helpful. Yeah, it's exactly. And it's not because of lack of good faith. I mean, doctors and pharmacists and nurses and everyone else is kind of doing the best job they can. But oftentimes, the way that the health system is structured uh, and just kind of the busyness and the, frankly, lack of coordination that can occur in a very fragmented health system really contributes. So I'll give you an example. So one of the reasons that people end up taking medicines for longer than they should is say I am an older person and I go see my cardiologist and the cardiologist prescribes a certain medicine. And then the cardiologist you know, maybe wants to see me back in a year or maybe I never go back and see them again. And then I go back to my primary care doctor and the primary care doctor looks at that medicine the cardiologist prescribes and says, huh, I don't really know why the person is taking that. Oh, but the cardiologist prescribed it, so I'm not going to touch it. Even if that medicine was only intended to be used short term or kind of in a trial period, what happens is the medicine sort of gets on and it stays on. And none of the doctors takes ownership of it because someone else prescribed it. And they're kind of afraid to touch it. And this is particularly true of a medication which isn't causing an obvious problem. It's not causing an obvious side effect. Myself as the patient, I'm not complaining to my doctor about it. So it's sort of just like water under the bridge, just keeps flowing along. And there's always something else to talk about uh, during a clinic visit. And so it's just sort of a quiet issue that just keeps going and going and going because of this inertia. And it's very hard to bring the level of energy up to to actively addressing, do you really need this? 
digging into it to actually kind of take the effort to stop the medication. Because right. the, the, the point of the, the, the act of least resistance is always just going to be to keep doing what you've been doing before. Right. And meanwhile, the patient is still often paying for the medication every month. They're paying. They might be suffering the side effects of the medication. They may not even know they're having side They have to make the effort to take it or exactly. to sort of organize themselves to take it. Exactly. Yeah. Often when people tell me, well, I'm, I'm worried about my older mom or dad, that they have all these medications and they, you know, how they're going to take them all correctly. How do we help them take them all? I say, well, let, let's start by looking at all of them and making sure they're all necessary. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because they may not be. And then we'll, we might find that when we have fewer medications, it becomes more manageable to think about how are we now going to make it feasible for this older person to take them you know, consistently. More manageable, less expensive, and the person might feel better. And safer, right? Yeah. 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 So yeah. really a, a win for the patient. It's just a matter, I guess, of uh, somebody finding the time to go over it and figure out why they're taking it and whether it could be deprescribed. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I want us to come back uh, later to this question of, you know, the right, you know, ways that people, patients and health providers can be better about uh, noticing those medications and considering deprescribing them. I'll also add that I've, I find that a lot of them seem to be added during hospitalizations, right? Absolutely. So there's data to suggest that for when older people go into the hospital, they actually leave the hospital, at least half of their medicines have changed because what happens you go to the hospital, you know, you had a little pain and then the pain medicine gets added and you have a little sleeping problem and the sleeping medicine gets added. And while you're there, your blood pressure is high. So a blood pressure medicine gets added and pretty soon you're discharged home on five new medicines, even though only one of them might be for the actual issue which brought you into the hospital. For example, if pneumonia, you might get an antibiotic, but then you get the blood pressure medicine and the constipation medicine and the sleeping medicine and all these other things on top of it. And then what happens? Because of inertia, those medicines can just stay and stay and stay. For years. For years, for decades. And no one knows why you're taking it. The patient doesn't know. The doctor doesn't know. But it just kind of hangs around. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's really, uh, really important. Another thing that happened to me once with a hospitalized patient, she had been in the assisted living facility. She was hospitalized. And this is the downside of the computerized electronic medical record. The system pulled up what they had as their latest medication list, which was from three years before mm-hmm. when she had been taking like 10 medications. And since then, she had uh, developed pretty substantial dementia. She was in a memory care unit. She had been on hospice where they had taken off all her medicines and then she'd gotten better. And she had been on like two medicines you know, for the previous year. But when she got hospitalized, their system pulled up her old medication list and then she was discharged on all of them. And so she came back to the assisted living facility on 12 medications or whatever it was instead of two. And then what kind of shocked me was that uh, nobody spoke up about it. And it was only when I came to do a follow-up visit a few weeks later when I said, what are all these medicines? And somehow it just had not been picked up that there had been this dramatic change, even though the assisted living facility had had to record that now she came back with 10 or 12 medicines instead of two. But, you know, nobody, nobody flagged it for review. 
Yeah, I think that's a very a very telling example. It really kind of speaks to the power of inertia when it comes to medications. And I think it also really highlights the importance of patients and their, their caregivers and loved ones really being an active participant in these conversations. And again, it's not because of malice on anyone's part. It's because, say, the assisted living facility or the doctor, whoever else, people are really busy. It's hard to cross-check and triple-check these things. These take time that people don't have. And so it's always easier just to kind of let things let things just go as the way they are. And so it's not for lack of caring, but it's really for lack of having the time and the the, the systems that will facilitate this, that these things happen. And so just waiting around for your doctor to really kind of raise the issue, much of the time it's not going to happen. And it's really the patient who can play an absolutely critical role, as well as their caregivers and loved ones, in really raising the issue. So when you go to the doctor and say, you know, can you tell me, like, can we actually review my medicines? Like, what's this one for? Do I still really need it? And then saying to the doctor, you know, I'm having this side effect. Could it be due to, or I'm having this symptom. Could it be due to any of my medicines? And really raising these questions and being in a very proactive way can really stimulate that conversation. And that oftentimes is the way that these conversations start and medications actually can end up being effectively removed that don't need to be there. And if, if the patient just kind of comes in and says, I trust my doctor, you know, I'll do whatever they say, there's some good value to that. But at the same time, it's kind of really a missed opportunity to, to take charge and um, really ask the questions that are going to help your own care. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. Health providers, you know, they're well-intentioned and the system is well-intentioned and a lot of stuff can fall through the cracks or, or just not work as intended. I mean, I'm sure right. the hospital thought this new system where they'll pull up your medication list was a great idea. Right. And it just didn't work as I think people, you know, realized right. it and was just going like, to. And so it's not safe to assume <laughs> exactly. right now that our systems will mostly get it right. We're working towards that, but we're not there yet. Yeah, I'm just a very personal example. Like I lecture about this, I talk about this, I do research on this, and I still struggle with my own patients because it's hard. Mm. It's really hard. There's always a lot of other things going on. If this was the only thing I had to think about, no problem. But there's always a million other things to focus on. And so if I struggle with it and I'm the one who like goes around lecturing people about this, then everyone is struggling with it. And again, it's not for lack of trying or lack of caring, but that's really why it's just hard. And that's why having a patient and their caregivers be a real active participant can be super helpful. Be proactive and ask questions, especially after, a, um, I think, a transition in care. That seems to be a moment being discharged from the hospital or, or, or moving from a facility. That seems to be a moment that brings up or an opportunity, I guess, to make sure the medications are right. So great. Well, why don't we move on now to the beers criteria for potentially inappropriate medication use in older adults. So I would love for, for you to start maybe by telling us a little bit of the history of the beers list, our list of bad medications. Okay. So the beers criteria were started in 1991 by a geriatrician named Mark Beers. And so the name refers to this, this esteemed geriatrician who tragically died at a young age rather than an, an alcoholic beverage. <laughs> And it started out just as kind of a list of drugs to avoid in the nursing home. And it was done kind of by a panel consensus process. And then over since 1991, the British criteria have been updated several times. And in 2012, the American Geriatric Society sort of took over the process and provided some resources and also kind of an extra level of rigor. So the way the British criteria are 
are updated now is every three to four years, we have a panel that works on an ongoing basis that solicits recommendations for new medications we should be thinking about adding to the criteria, as well as existing medications that are already on the criteria that maybe new evidence has come out that says they're safer than we thought they were before and maybe should take it away. We do a comprehensive review of the evidence. We have extensive discussions within our panel. There's a process for soliciting public comment. And through this whole process, we come out with a series of recommendations that updates the previous version of the list to really try to be as update and as evidence-based as possible in identifying medications that are potentially inappropriate for older adults, meaning that, you know, that the, the harms outweigh the benefits or the sort of a disproportionate or, or a disadvantageous ratio of benefits to harms compared to alternative treatments. Okay. So you start off by saying that that Dr. Beers, you know, originally started compiling this list of medications that should maybe be avoided in nursing home patients. So, you know, fundamentally, like what made him think, oh, maybe I need to make a list of these medicines? Because people in nursing homes were getting all sorts of crazy medications that were harmful to them. <laughs> and unfortunately, that still happens in nursing homes, in hospitals, and in outpatient, just kind of everyday settings. There's been more educational understanding over time. So to a certain degree, the numbers have reduced. But this is an extremely common problem. You, you mentioned the example with, with your patient going from 2 to 12 medications you know, and as a geri practicing geriatrician, kind of everywhere you go, you see examples of problem medications that people are using that really have a high potential to cause harm, you know, and or a low potential to help them. And we think we can be doing better than this by just making sure that people aren't starting these medicines in the first place. And if someone's taking them, try to find a way to take those medicines off, either just entirely or maybe that medicine's treating a certain condition and there's going to be a better medicine that's going to be more effective and more safe, which we can substitute. Right, right. And now the beers list is not just for people in nursing homes. It's for, you know, quote unquote, older adults. So who qualifies as an older adult when, we're, when you're evaluating medicines to decide whether they should be part of the beers criteria? Exactly. So the British criteria have kind of moved beyond the nursing home. They apply to older adults regardless of care setting, although typically most of the criteria are related to medications used to treat chronic conditions. And the when we say an older adult, we typically mean people age 65 and older. And it's really important to say that that's sort of an artificial distinction. You know, it's based on the Medicare eligibility age, but it's not that someone suddenly goes from age 64 to 65 and suddenly they become old and that the medications they should take should change. It's kind of a gradual process. So the way we think about it is 65 is sort of a, you know, a very rough number to think about, but it's really important to think about a person, the continuum of age, and also the overall state of someone's health. If you have a 64-year-old who has a lot of medical problems, is frail, has a lot of difficulty even doing daily activities like getting dressed or using the shower, from the point of view of medications, that person sort of is really at risk, and the Beers Criteria medications are probably applicable. In contrast, if you have a 67-year-old who's running marathons, you know, working every day, uh, which many people are uh, you know, at those ages, then it's not that the Beers criteria should be ignored, but we can think of that person as generally healthy, and so the Beers criteria are probably a little less 
important for that person uh, than for the first example I gave. And I think also, you know, I think you mentioned the word vulnerability, that this kind of gets at the fact that, you know, it's sort of like, why do people respond to medications differently when they're older than when they're younger? And that part of that is as people get older, they become more vulnerable to side effects because their bodies are and minds might be less resilient or they're more likely to have chronic illnesses, right? Exactly. So the, the, the way I often like to think about it is that it's kind of using the analogy of taking someone who's standing and giving them a push and will they fall down? Mm. So if you take a young person who's physically strong and you give them a push, they have a lot of compensatory mechanisms. They'll rock their body, they'll move their foot back, they'll kind of rebalance themselves and they have a lot of resistance against that push that prevents them from toppling over. And you take an old frail person, you give them the push, well, their balance is already impaired. Maybe their muscles are already weak. And even a small push might send that person toppling because they don't have the resiliency to really counteract that negative influence. And medications can, in large part, have the same effect. You know, medications are designed to affect the body systems, you know, sometimes in positive ways. That's why ways. they work. <laughs> That's why they work, exactly. But they can do that in beneficial ways. They can do that in harmful ways. And if you have a lot of sort of innate resiliency, even if there's it's pushing your things in a bad direction, you're, you're, you're able to oftentimes resist that because you have what we call physiologic reserve. Mm -hmm. or cognitive reserve. You have like the resiliency built into you to push back. If, if you're old and you're frail, either in your body or your mind, you don't have that much reserve left. So even a little push in a bad direction can really send you kind of over the cliff and really get you into trouble. Right. And then I guess, you know, there are a large subset of older adults who are kind of in this uh, middle area, right? Where they don't look or feel visibly frail but their bodies inside are still less, certainly less resilient at, you know, 70 than they were when they were 30. Exactly. So it's really a continuum. And so we shouldn't think of it as like black or white, young or old, you know, healthy or unhealthy, but it's really a, a graded phenomenon. We have to think about kind of levels of risk. Okay. So that's the genesis of the beers list. So what's on it? <laughs> All now, right. I know there are a lot of medications on it. Actually, I didn't count. How many do you know off the top of your head? How many are on it? A lot. I don't, I don't know the Is exact it hundreds. Number. I should have looked, but I know there are some major categories that geriatricians love to hate. What do people need to know more or less about the types of medications that are on the list that, you know, would be especially useful for them to know or surprising for them? Sure. So there are a lot of criteria, but there's only a handful of things that really come up very commonly that older people commonly take. And so one example of this are medications which help people sleep. Mm. Many medications which help people sleep, there's a whole bunch of different kinds, not all of them, but most of them cause a lot of side effects and often are not very effective. So some examples of that are things we call the first generation antihistamines. These are things like the generic term is diphenhydramine, it's commonly known as Benadryl, right. or another medicine called hydroxyzine, commonly known as Adorax. And these are medications you often find in kind of cough and cold remedies, over-the-counter sleeping aids, anti-itching remedies, um, uh, you know, anti-allergy medicines. And these medicines have a substantial degree of, of adverse effects. They can really cause problems with urination, dry mouth, confusion, increase the risk of falls, and a whole host of other effects. And the truth is they actually don't help people sleep 
much better than they would without them. Well, a lot of people certainly think they're helping, but I'll throw out the, the term that's in uh, the paper on the beers list, but they are anticholinergic. And I'm going to say that because I actually have said that word a lot on the podcast. <laughs> Great. And, and, in, and on my site, because I've decided the public should just know. So again, it, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter, right, in the brain that helps the brain work and also affects other parts of your body, like your digestion and how much saliva you have, moisture you have in your mouth and in your eyes. And so anticholinergics interfere with that. And that makes them helpful for some things like overactive bladder, but also means that they're interfering with your brain processing, which is part of why they make you sleepy. Exactly. So I mean, the, the, classic, the classic neurotransmitter deficit is in Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is characterized by a having too little acetylcholine. And what these medicines do is reduce your acetylcholine levels. Right. So these medicines don't cause dementia per se, but if you think about it, they're doing the same things to your brain that Alzheimer's dementia is doing, at least during the time that that drug is in your body. So, you know, they can cause a lot of problems. So they're especially, I would say, useful to be aware of and avoid uh, for people who are having memory problems or who have a, a diagnosis, right, of Alzheimer's. Exactly. So for people who have memory problems, for sure, their medications to be very careful about because it's likely that they will cause more memory problems. And when I say memory, it's not just, you know, remembering what I had for breakfast this morning, but it can include kind of all other types of brain functioning, be able to plan your day, being able to kind of stay awake, be able to do a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. um, but even for people who don't actually have dementia, but people are kind of nonetheless, they're older and they're vulnerable it can kind of tip you to a state of being more cognitively alert to having more problems, not to the point where you're completely falling apart, but you know, hey, you know, you're not quite as quick reacting when you're driving. And that actually increases your risk of having a car accident. Or maybe you're not quite as quick as thinking on your feet and you get confused or you forget what you're supposed to do or you were out doing that errand and what was that thing I was supposed to do and who was that person? I know their name, but I can't think of it. It will probably increase the risk of these kind of side effects as well. You're right, right. Okay, so geriatricians love to hate anticholinergics. Now yep. people know why. <laughs> exactly. What's another broad category that uh, is commonly used that we'd like to alert health providers to? So another broad category are other medications used for sleep, and those are typically these drugs called benzodiazepines, and also their close cousins, which are called the Z drugs. And these are typically drugs which are often advertised on TV to help for sleep. So these are things like Lunesta and Ambien. Um, and these, these side effects of these medications are in many ways sort of similar to the anticholinergics, but not exactly the same. And in particular, they increase the risk of falls, they increase the risk of memory problems, of developing delirium, uh, and so on and so forth. And again, studies have shown that they actually don't help people get to sleep much faster, and they don't increase the total amount of sleep people have. And they can actually make you more drowsy the next day and increase your risk of things like car crashes. And then the benzodiazepines that uh, names people might recognize would be things like uh, Valium, Valium, Ativan, exactly. Xanax, that's short acting, mm -hmm. but people are sometimes taking it for anxiety. And uh, the benzodiazepines too are extremely habit forming. So I think that's the other thing people don't realize is you might go to your doctor and say you're having some anxiety or insomnia and somebody prescribes this and then it can be very uh, hard to uh, get off of it later. 
Absolutely. And there are strategies for getting off, but that strategy, if you try to kind of quit cold turkey, you'll go into withdrawal and it's very hard. Uh, you know, most people, not everyone, but, you know, but, but this is important to avoid in the first place. But, but it does keep in mind that if you are taking these medications, there are strategies for successfully getting off them, but they typically require slowly going down on the dose bit by bit every two or three weeks until over a period of maybe four months or so you've stopped. So it's, yeah. it's a process and you can really kind of talk to your doctor or a specialist about specific ways about getting off one of those medicines if you're already taking it. Right. Well, we actually had Dr. Tannenbaum on the podcast a while back and she has a great handout for the public about, you know, with suggestions on how benzodiazepines could be tapered. So I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Any other major categories you want to call out on the, the beers list that people should know about? Sure. So some other medicines are for older people with dementia, um, antipsychotics are often prescribed. And these are things like drugs like Risperidone or Seroquel. Zyprexa. Um, Zyprexa, exactly. Yeah, for difficult behaviors. Exactly. What often happens when people have dementia, oftentimes difficult behaviors, these medications are often prescribed. They, they do have some benefits for sure, but they have a lot of harms. Including a substantially increased risk of death. Now, it's not to say that these drugs should never be used, but because they do increase the risk of death, we're obviously quite careful about using them. And as opposed to kind of just prescribing them willy-nilly for anyone who who has any sort of behavior problem, but I kind of think of them as the last line of defense. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit more because I, I think you also authored a, an editorial that was published with the latest version of the beers criteria on guidelines, you know, guidance on how to use the beers criteria, because I think that's a very important point is that, you know, you've helped uh, create and revise this list of medications to be careful about, right, that geriatricians often think of as bad drugs. And at the same time, that doesn't mean it's always wrong to use them. So can you talk a little bit more about that? That's exactly right. And that gets into kind of the subtlety and the individualized decision-making where it's very hard to make an absolute thing that this drug is absolutely good or this drug is absolutely bad. There's all sorts of shades of gray in between. And the beer's criteria is no exception. So there are plenty of older adults who might be taking a drug that's on the beer's criteria. And in fact, for that individual, that drug is the right choice. It's highly beneficial for them. They're not having any side effects. The alternatives probably aren't as good given their particular circumstances. Or maybe they've tried alternatives and they didn't work well, right? Maybe they tried something that wasn't on the beers list. Exactly. And they strongly prefer to take it. So, you know, so those are all very reasonable things to consider. And in a situation like that, it might be a perfectly reasonable and in fact advisable choice to, to start that beers criteria medication or to keep taking it if you're already taking it and it seems to be working well with minimal effects. The problem is, is that like so many things in medicine, people take kind of these subtle things and turn it into black and white. And so some people have said, oh, if you're on a beer's criteria medication, that's automatically bad. And then the countervailing thing is, well, then I shouldn't believe any of it because what do you mean? It's not all bad. And so what it really kind of requires is thinking of the beer's criteria as kind of a warning light. So whenever I'm thinking about prescribing a beer's criteria medication, or I, or I see a patient who's new to me who's already taking a beer's criteria medication, it kind of raises an extra red flag in my mind. Like, ooh, this is something I really need to pay close attention to. Is it causing a problem? Are there side effects? Is it really helping? 
And it doesn't mean I automatically stop it. It just means I give it kind of an extra degree of scrutiny. And has the patient been informed maybe of the risks? Because I find that people often don't realize that their benzodiazepines come with an increased risk of falls and mental fogginess, right? Exactly. So I think the two things are people being aware about the potential risks, but also it's it's a really kind of explicit discussion and exploration of potential side effects. Because what happens is someone might start to take a medication and then at some point in the future, maybe they feel like their balance is going down or their thinking isn't quite as sharp anymore. Maybe they had a fall or two and they think, oh, that's just because I'm getting old or maybe because maybe I'm getting dementia, or maybe they get more short of breath and they think, oh, it's just because I already have this you know, heart failure or something like that. In fact, all of those symptoms can be drug side effects. And the problem is it can be hard to tell, is this a fact of getting old or is this a drug side effect? And if we just kind of just sort of brush it away, it's just, oh, I'm just getting old. I just have to live with it. We can often miss drug side effects that are reversible. If we only stopped the drug, that symptom would get better. So it really requires kind of paying close attention. Could the symptom I'm having be a drug side effect? And sometimes it can be hard to know. And the only way to really know for sure is to stop the medicine and see if that symptom remains unchanged or if it gets better. Um, But a lot of times we, you know, doctors don't ask and patients don't volunteer these symptoms. And so what happens is people continue to suffer in silence about something that that actually is something we can do something about by stopping the medicine. Right, right. So maybe we can talk about what people can do, you know, what ideally would happen if someone is taking a Beer's Criteria medicine or if the doctor proposes it. What would you say is the ideal way for this to, to play out? Well, let's say the best thing to do is to, if you if you are already taking a Beer's Criterion medication, or your your doctor or some other healthcare professional is thinking of prescribing one for you, is to have that conversation with your doctor or healthcare professional. It's not a good idea just to stop the medicine on your own or just kind of refuse it outright. But really, it gets back to what we were talking about before about having an informed conversation. It's like, hey, doctor, you know, I noticed this medicine is on the the, the beers list and and is this something I really should be taking? Can you tell me like what are the side effects I should expect from this medicine? What are the benefits? Are there other drugs that actually might be more effective or more safer? And then engaging in that conversation can be really valuable mm-hmm. uh, because the doctor might have a very legitimate reason for prescribing that drug, or maybe they don't because they didn't really realize that uh, the problems that might occur. But you'll never know unless you have the conversation. But yeah. having that conversation is really important because you just shouldn't assume that either the doctor was doing the right thing and you also shouldn't assume that the doctor's doing the wrong thing. The only really, really to, to know is to engage. Yeah. And so maybe to sort of speak up and just have a conversation reviewing, you know, what's the purpose of the medication? making sure you understand what it's being prescribed for and whether it's there to help you with a certain symptom versus uh, prevention, and then just reviewing what would be other ways uh, that I could manage this problem if I didn't take this. Because it seems to me that all things being equal, it's generally safer to not be taking these medicines and generally safer to be on fewer medicines in general. Exactly. So this same principle applies to any medication. The Beer's criteria maybe have a little extra level of scrutiny because of their risk, but these are great questions to ask regardless of what medication is considered being started. And also, as we mentioned before, 
you know, it's a great idea on a regular basis, at least once a year, to review all of your medicines with the doctor, just to make sure there's something that you've already been taking for a while that might actually be quite reasonable to stop. Right. And it could be some of those medicines that were just kind of added on during a hospitalization, right? I mean, they used to always prescribe to people a proton pump inhibitor, right? Exactly. <laughs> a medicine to reduce stomach acid, and then people right. stay on it forever. <laughs> Exactly. And it's one of these things, once the drug gets started, it just sort of hangs out and it's really hard to stop. So, Okay. So so having a conversation and uh, making sure you understand what it's being prescribed for, reviewing how well it's working and how well it's either benefiting you right now in terms of treating a symptom, or I guess if it's preventive, like how likely it is to benefit you for the future, right? Mm -hmm. As you think about whether to keep taking it, and what are alternatives? I also think a little bit of the beers criteria, although you're right, it should be applied to all medicines, but that just, you know, if an older person is going to take one of those medications, there should be a good reason and the provider should be able to explain that good reason. Exactly. You and know? a good reason is not because, oh, another doctor prescribed it. <laughs> right. You know, yeah, a good yeah. reason would be, well, we thought about alternatives and there was this or that problem. And we discussed it and the person wanted to take it because uh, I have an article on better health while aging, which um, it's four types of medications to consider avoiding if you're worried about your memory. So the anticholinergics are on there and periodically somebody will write a comment that, well, but I have these terrible allergies, so I have to take these antihistamines. And, you know, and then I say, well, well, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's, you have a very compelling reason, right? Yeah. Or just like take a different antihistamine that's actually safer for your memory. Yes. That was effective at treating your allergies. Right. Right. You know, you can consider those two choices. And maybe if you tried the less anticholinergic one, because the, the ones that are more anticholinergic tend to work better for itching, that's what you needed to control your symptoms. But that the important thing is that it be a sort of carefully considered decision and that you have thought about it. So we've talked about older people and their families just, you know, reviewing medications regularly, especially if it's a beers criteria type uh, medication and making sure it really makes sense to continue it and that there's not a, a safer or other alternative to consider. And then you also mentioned a kind of a yearly review. Tell us a little bit more about that. Do you do those with your patients? Yeah, I definitely try to kind of do a regular medication review with my patients because it helps to kind of break the cycle of inertia. If I just try to take a step and think, step back and think, I like to, my, I, I personally, what I like to do is call it a brown bag review. And this is actually a great technique. Uh, where a patient brings in all of the medicines they're taking. That is, you take all the pill bottles out of your cabinets, any medicine organizer that includes drugs you got from whichever doctors you've seen, drugs you've picked up at the, at the pharmacy, just purchasing over the counter, you know, herbal remedies, vitamins, everything, and just stick it in a bag. And the reason it's called a brown bag review is oftentimes people have so many, you, it, it only fit if you put in like a big brown shopping bag. <laughs> uh, so it's not a plastic bag review, it's a smaller bag. Um, but you bring all these medicines in, you actually go over them with the doctor. And that actually can be super helpful because it provides a venue for doing this review and provides it, you know, clues as to like, oh, you have three, three bottles that have the same medicine in them. Like, and one of them is actually was from three years ago, and maybe that drug is expired. Or maybe you realize this medication, you're not taking it very often. So why is that? And, and a lot of times your doctor may not know about many of the medicines you're taking because they might have been prescribed by a different doctor and the information never got back to your, the doctor you're seeing now. Or maybe they're over-the-counter medications. You're taking that sleeping pill you picked up at the CVS or, or Walgreens. 
and your doctor didn't know about it. So those are all really useful things. It really kind of facilitates just you know, that basic understanding of what, to your doctor, what medicines are you taking and provides a systematic way of going through each medicine and saying, why am I taking this? What is this for? Do I still need it? What side effects should I be looking out for? And the doctor says, oh, these side effects, like, oh, I'm actually having that symptom. You know, might it be due to this drug? Should I think about stopping it or changing the dose or switching to a different drug? So it sounds like it really helps get everyone on the same page about what's being taken and how, and then is a great starting point for reviewing, you know, whether medication is still necessary or whether there might be side effects. Now, I know in primary care, doctors are often really busy. And I've heard, you know, sometimes the suggestion that you could take that bag of medicines to the pharmacist. In your experience, do people get a lot of value out of that? I feel like in principle, it should work. You beat me to the punch. That was exactly what I was about oh, okay. to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, so, so, so two points. If you do it with your doctor, this thing takes time. It's not the kind of thing you do when your hand's on the door as you're leaving the visit. So schedule a visit for it is so what you're saying. Schedule a visit explicitly to discuss that because it's going to take the full time of the visit to really do it. And it's worth it but just requires that kind of foresight and intention. But the other thing is it's not just about doctors. You know, pharmacists can be incredibly valuable. They have the expertise and the skills. Medicines is what they do day in and day out. And they can help review your medications. And that can be if you're in a, if you're in a health system like a Kaiser system or a VA healthcare system, where there are kind of pharmacists who can provide their services better in the system. If you're more in kind of just like in the community setting, and maybe there's not a pharmacist embedded in the system directly, there are community pharmacies that can do it. There are consultant pharmacists you can engage, people with Medicare Part D, the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit. Certain people qualify to have a medication review done by pharmacists engaged by your prescription drug plan. So think, you know, definitely it's a good thing to think about with your doctor, but there are lots of other venues, especially with pharmacists that can be extremely valuable for doing this kind of review. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This has been really helpful and such a wonderful discussion. In closing, any last words of advice or helpful resources that you'd like to share with the audience for those who want to take the next step in learning about medication safety for older adults? Sure. So I might say sort of close with two items. The first is sort of recapping a, a theme that's been present throughout our conversation, which is really encouraging people to be an active participant in their healthcare, particularly around their medications. Really kind of asking questions of your doctors and pharmacists, setting the agenda to talk about the medications, making sure you regularly review them with your clinicians is extremely valuable uh, and shouldn't be underestimated. And then in terms of resources, uh, the Health and Aging Foundation, which is at healthinaging.org, is the website, is a foundation that's affiliated with the American Geriatric Society and has some helpful tip sheets and other information about use of medications in older adults. So I recommend that people check that out as well. Great. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. I think they used to have, I'll look for it, they used to have a tip sheet on um what you could do if you were taking a beer's list medication or sort of a, some guidelines for how to bring it up with your physician. So I'll look and see if I can still find that. But uh, I agree. Health and aging is a wonderful resource and more people need to know about it. Well, Mike, thank you once again for joining us today. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. 
I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.